Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. What's going on, everybody? The noise in your ears is Binge Boys. I'm Hal Rudnick. Across from me on the Zoom is Lon Harrison. We will introduce our special guest in just a moment. Lon, uh, happy 4th of July weekend. Oh, okay. Now, now me. I it was an up and down intro. I didn't know where I was supposed to oh, jump in. Oh, don't worry. I, I, listen, I'm playing point guard right here. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. I'm not. All I'm right. not gonna let the ball go out of bounds. I think, uh, yeah, just uh, went somewhere in the stands now. I don't know where we are. All right, it's good to be here, Hal. I'm, I'm happy to do another Binge Boys. Let's introduce uh, the third bim- the third Binge Boy for this week. We've got a third uh, binger today. Uh, you know him from uh, podcasting, from comic books, from just being an amazing presence all over the internet. Uh, my old pal, Lon's old friend, DJ Woolridge. Welcome to the party. Hello. I'm so excited to binge some boys with you all. Yeah. Well, no, that's not. We we are the boys. We binge content. We don't we, binge. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. We don't I, binge I, boys. I mess up that, the assignment. I mess up the assignment. That's behind the Patreon wall. <laughs> you yes. got to go to the Patreon for that <laughs> yeah. one. That's kind of like our after dark segment. I got uh, it. I get it. I get it. It lends itself to it if you think about it. Troubling. <laughs> right off the top here. Troubling. Uh, DJ, thank you so weekend. much for joining us. So, and I really appreciate you are going. You are along for the ride. We're going to um, talk news. We're going to learn about you, and then we've got some shows that we watched uh, together. And thank you for doing. You didn't just come here to do uh, some gum flapping. You came here. You did the binging. So, thanks for putting in work. Listen, happy to do. Alon told me what you all were talking about, and one of the things I was already starting watching, and the other one was like, "Well, I've been meaning to watch this." And this is just a good excuse. This is just a good excuse to get buckled down and finally do it. Perf. Perf. Love it. Yeah, sometimes a Paul Schrader movie, you need that extra little push. Like, yeah, this is going to be grim. Well, and I going to be a man. This is going to be a man at the end of his tether. This is this is just <laughs> this is just all the pressures of the modern world just pull, piling down on one guy. Yeah. Well, I got to you know, take my time with this one. I'd heard mixed things on this one in particular. So I was like, well, I don't get oh, around man, to it. Really? This was a good opportunity. There you go. Nice. Uh, so without further ado, let's jump into the, uh, the news. It's the news with Lon. Cameron Diaz making her big return to acting in the new Netflix action comedy, Back in Action. I like that it's called Back in Action. Like, we don't know what the movie's about, but I can only presume it's about Cameron Diaz's return to acting. Yes. Yeah, maybe she's just playing herself or... Maybe it's just a character who's coming out of some sort of hiatus, retirement or something. I feel like a lot of people may not even realize, like, obviously you realize Cameron Diaz hasn't been in anything for a while, but that it was a purposeful, like, step away. Her last movie was uh, Annie in 2018. And then oh, she, dang. she says she purposefully, like, she needed to figure out her own life and it was too busy the life of being a movie star Hollywood actress, so she purposefully stepped away uh, and was sort of enjoying retirement, apparently, until she was phone called uh, by Jamie Foxx 
Also Tom Brady. Now this is, they, there's obviously, this is all caught up in the marketing and promotion for this movie. Uh, Jamie Foxx shared a really weird, awkward, kind of stunted taped phone call between himself, Cameron Diaz, and Tom Brady for some reason. He's yeah, like, I was going to, hey. when you threw that name out there, I was like, I'm, I'm going to let Long keep talking and see if yeah. I heard correctly. And I you apparently did. I did. He's like, Diaz, what's up? It's Fox. Because apparently they're so tight. They, it's just last names. between <laughs> they, They're Diaz and Fox, one other. Uh, they also, I should note here, they were in Andy together. Can you guys think they were in one other film together? Jamie Foxx and Cameron Diaz. Can you name that film? Son of Mask. Incorrect. Great guess, though. What Thank was you. it? Oh, man, I hope I don't whiff this so hard that Jamie Foxx isn't even in this movie. Was it Stealth? It's not Stealth. That's Ice Cube, who's, okay. in, who's the, main, the main guy in Stealth. Uh, Jamie Foxx plays Willie Beeman in the film Any oh. Given Sunday. Oliver yes. Stone's Any Given Sunday. Anyway... So he calls her up and he's like, hey, I'm going to do this Netflix movie. You should be in it. Also, to convince you, here's the king of unretirement, the guy who knows more about not retiring after you say you're going to retire than anyone else, Tom Brady. And then Tom Brady jumps on the line. He's like, hey, you should do this movie. So my guess is he's in the movie or he's producing the movie or Tom Brady must have some connection to this movie. Well, and Tom Brady's getting involved with movies. He's got right. that uh, 80 for Brady thing in the exactly. works. And, we, uh, know that, we know that Tom Brady's already having his sort of Hollywood moment. So I feel like this is all part of the promotion for this film. And it'll be like, uh, you know, Tom Brady's got a supporting role. And, you know, right. like a LeBron James kind of deal. Like he's going to oh, try sure. to start popping up in films. Yeah. The only athlete cameos I support are the ones in Hustle. I, I oh my God. appreciated They're those. They're so good. Hustle so did it right. Shockingly good. Shockingly good. If you were good. like, Anthony Edwards is going to be the bad guy in the next like Marvel, I'd be like, awesome. I'm in. Anthony Edwards is going to be bigger than Anthony Edwards in acting. <laughs> well, uh, I, don't don't goose. besmirch Goose. Don't besmirch Goose. That. I, well, I have to ask. You said it's an action comedy and I feel obligated, Lon, I feel obligated to ask. This is on Netflix, right? That's what you said it's coming to netflix we don't know the plot we know seth gordon the guy who directed horrible bosses he also did that great documentary the king of kong by the way uh mm, we yeah. know he's directing and the guy who wrote neighbors i believe brendan o'brien is, is, is his name he's writing sure is this going to be a red notice what are what over under on this being a red notice mm. i mean they're they are pitching it as a straight up comedy and seth gordon most of his films fall very clean he did like identity theft with uh jason bateman and Melissa, Melissa McCarthy. McCarthy. Yeah. He did horrible bosses. Like he plays very much in the studio comedy world. So my guess is this is going to be more like a conventional comedy. But action comedy always. Mm -hmm. At this point, that should always make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up because that's two Teetering of the, on the three. Brink. That's two of the three genres mm. that congeal into being a if there's a heist element yep. i'm deeply concerned yeah, yeah, yeah and if the first promo image here's how to, here's the next clue if the first promo image comes out and it's jamie fox in a tux and cameron diaz in a gown Boom. we're in date we're Done. in trouble yeah you're in red zone territory that's red, red zone. Territory. then it's like oh they're going to a fancy event together they're probably gonna have to fight their way out of uh Red notice. That's a red just notice. Like, just like uh, Steam and Willie Beeman in the red zone, yeah. this could be in the red zone. My name is Willie. Willie Beeman. You guys remember that? Well, he did that, that rap song in the middle of Eddie Gibbonson where they do the full oh, yeah. show. You the I remember him throwing again. up before his first game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good movie, Eddie Gibbonson. Anyway, 
back in action. Wait for it. Let's move on. Uh, Field of Dreams, that series. This is the TV adaptation of the 89 film. Kevin Costner, he's an Iowa farmer. He builds a baseball diamond in his cornfield because some voice tells him to. Uh, that's getting a TV adaptation from Mike Schur. He's the guy behind Rutherford Falls, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a bunch of other shows about nice people who like one another. Uh, so that's not moving forward at Peacock. This was originally going to be a Peacock show. Uh, Peacock, Peacock said, out. you're out. Peacock's no longer interested, but Universal Television not giving up. They are shopping this around so it could still pop up on another network or a stream. What about the MLB network? You know, it, it actually does make a lot of sense considering that they now have that Field of Dreams field and they're doing games there. Yes. The MLB themselves are very much into Field of Dreams nostalgia in this moment. And 2024 is an anniversary because the movie was 1989. So we've got a key, mm. you know, we've got a key, uh, what is it, the 35th anniversary? 35-year anniversary? Yeah, there you go. Wow. So, like, uh, that's a that's a notable... 35-year? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it lands on a five. Mm-hmm. Uh, R.I.P. Uh, Ray Liotta, he can't uh, co- come back for this. Uh, well, he's he was a... already dead in the first movie, so... But but, but his ghost, we can't... <laughs> like, we have to force ghost his ghost. If Ghostbusters yeah. proved anything... We can we can make it work. We have the technology to bring somebody. <laughs> I just don't it's think true. Ghostbusters proved anything. I, guess I don't be, disagree. I don't disagree. I'm sick of Ghostbusters. That's what it proved. If, if we're going to bring back Le, uh, Ray Liotta, then I think we have to bring back Burt Lancaster as Moonlight Graham and yeah, like a, there some you sort go. of CG. <laughs> I got to say, and it's not a knock on Field of Dreams. I make fun because it's a little silly when you talk it's about schmalty, it. But I, but... I like Field of Dreams, but... I'm not quite sure how it translates. I don't feel like it translates very well into a show because what's the ongoing element? We have to prepare for the big ghost game every week. Yeah, I mean, right. Like, Uh, it it, it, it can't be the whole season is leading up to playing catch with your ghost dad. That's just, that's not a a fulfilling season. You know what? Maybe they go in Field of Dreams, like a different sport or genre. So it's like (laughs) getting old, getting like old piano players back together Mm -hmm. or getting old seamstresses back together. The only other thought I had is like, it's like a highway to heaven. Like the voice gives him different instructions and then he's got to do other. Like if you build it, he will come. That's the pilot. But then the next one is like, I don't know, maybe like a cool upscale coffee place in town. <laughs> and he's like, well, I got to go build a cool upscale coffee place in town. All right. I, I feel like that's closer to what it would have to be. I don't know how I feel about that, but I feel and like And then that's... like the ghost of Steve Jobs shows up at the end. He's like, oh man, Steve Jobs, come in, have a latte. Oh, and then at the high-end coffee place, they're like, you must unionize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you must unionize like, nah, this coffee Fuck place. you, ghost. You yeah. know, that's not good for our play. Yeah, and, and then they bust the union. That's bad for morale, ghost. The ghost. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, to me, this kind of feels like, because it makes most sense for Universal because Peacock is the NBC Universal streamer. So they want, you know, they make the most sense. They own the content they're making. Otherwise, it's like, well, now you're dealing with different networks and they it's split ownership and it's less than ideal. So unless somebody else is like, I guess maybe Amazon Freebie, they're, yeah. they seem pretty hard up. Maybe they'll, they'll take a bite. We'll see. Netflix announced a live action present day series called Chaos. Now that's K-A-O-S, the, the cool. Greekified spelling. Uh, it's based on Greek mythology, and this comes from End of the Fucking World creator Charlie Koval. Koval? Koval? Gotta be Koval. Hugh Grant is going to star as Zeus, and the plot is instigated by he feels like his 
status as king of the gods may be in danger. He starts to become paranoid that other gods are after his dominance. Uh, the cast also includes David Thewlis as Hades, Janet McTeer as Hera, Cliff Curtis as Poseidon, and then we're going to get uh, all sorts of human... There's also mortal characters who get, like, sucked into the battle between the gods. If, if, if a god or if you have someone who's, like, an indeterminate, like, uh, ethnicity or something, why has it always got to be a British guy as a Greek god? Always. Or so, whatever. Who did you say is playing Zeus? Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant. Uh, yeah, have you, have you seen a new Thor yet? Not yet. Well, because Russell Crowe is Zeus in that. Yeah. He makes an accent choice that is truly baffling. That is just, that it's hard to identify. It's hard to understand why that I, choice I, was made. A Greek accent is very difficult. Uh, I, well, I'm not well, sure that it is Greek. It borders on Italian. I don't. <laughs> I feel like a lot of a lot of English and American actors over the years have kind of struggled to to replicate a, an authentic Greek sound. Yeah, I just feel like, you know, obviously Chris Hemsworth is not changing his accent. I feel like Russell Crowe could have just phoned that one in and just gone, I'm just, I'm just yeah, me. Yeah, I'm I just don't, me. Right. needed to get the goat, Anthony Quinn, who played Zorba the Greek. <laughs> <laughs> like what you're saying, the idea that this is the Marvel version of mythology, they're not the actual gods that we think of. They're aliens or other beings yeah. or whatever that early humans thought were gods, mm -hmm. or at least that's how it works in yeah. the Thor case. Like, they're not Norse gods. They're from a real place called Asgard, and they just have powers that make them seem godlike to you. When is, when is Jesus going to make a cameo? I know Yahweh is in Marvel Comics. There have been appearances by the Jewish god from the Torah. Which is great, because so, if I recall how the Torah treats that, love love depicting God in his prayer, we're all, it's I think it's, it's fine. just, it's like, I think it's like a clown, it's like a Doctor Strange met him or something. Yeah. But anyway, so I, I'm, sure, I'm figuring Jesus exists on some plane. Two great wizards. <laughs> but going back to this chaos thing, of course, uh, we were talking about it a little bit off air. I immediately thought of like Percy Jackson, but I also thought of mm -hmm. like American gods. Right. I was going to say it's a very Neil Gaiman-y kind yeah. of concept to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. ancient gods, but still in our world and like fighting for human, you know, like the more humans believe in them, the more power they have or whatever. Love it. I love that. I eat, I eat that stuff up. Speaking of Marvel, yeah, there's fun. a, there's a, uh, it's called Legion of X. One of the X books is dealing with that. We're dealing with gods and their concept of all that is really solid. But um, I really like the first season of American Gods. <laughs> that was, that was really yeah. cool. I mean, I think that the other difficult thing, if you're writing about, like if you're taking Greek mythology as your starting place mm -hmm. is that it's a thing Americans know, but almost exclusively through like the iconography. Like yeah. Americans all think we know Greek mythology, but we really know like three of the stories and then like Zeus Thunderbolt, Poseidon Trident. Like we yeah. don't really know it. And so the deeper you go in your adaptation, the more you get into shit that is just gonna lose your audience. Like they can't make Antigone references. Mm -hmm. People don't know who the fuck those people, people know are. Who that is. Right. So like I, I uh, you know, I worry, I worry because as a writer, the first thing you would do would be like get real deep into the actual myths yeah. and be like, how cleverly can I adapt all of these kind like, oh, who's the Minotaur and what's the they, what's the maze that they're in? But like most people don't know that level of Greek mythology. They just know the Icarus don't fly too close to the sun. Mm -hmm. Wings melt, fall into the ocean, you know, yeah. like, Clash of the, the Titans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But even that, like. Even that is, it's taking like little bits of like 18 different myths and just mashing them up. And everybody now thinks that that's the story because that's the version we know. Yeah. Well, if there's a robot owl on board, uh, I I'm in. His name is Boobo Hal. Come on. 
Get, get your shit together. The other thing that made me think of um, is one of my favorite Wonder Woman runs by Brian Azzarello and Cliff uh, yes, Chang. Yes, uh, d- d- Depicted the Greek gods as, as essentially a crime family. Right. Uh, and oh, it was man, like, that Cliff Chang art is incredible. So good. But like that, so good. that was one that I really, and it's a bummer because like the second that run was over, they immediately retconned it out of existence. But the idea of depicting the Greek gods as a co- crime family really resonated with me and i feel like there's a lot of mileage you could get out of that yeah because like those gods they were not black and white there was like you know just like zeus like zeus let you know zeus loved to fuck mm-hmm. zeus would come down yeah, to earth well, and just right. like quite uh the 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 yeah um moralist coxman of the gods mm-hmm. and lon and i talked about a show called uh, blood of zeus Mm-hmm. Uh, which was an that, anime, that animated Netflix, series, which was really a fun depiction of some of these myths. The Castlevania studio did, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. did this. Yeah, it's, it, right. They, their, their gods were like people with powers, not like God. And it, it's always weird. Like Clash of the Titans, you mentioned. We sort of try to split the difference between like Judeo-Christian gods, how our gods are, and that. So they're still like. You know, they're in the clouds and togas, and they're like, we must tilt man, you know? Like, they're that. But the, the Greek gods were like, just, they were just like a bunch of horny dudes. And mm-hmm. Like, they were they were just getting jealous and beating each other up. And it does seem like that's what this is going to be like. You cast Hugh Grant as Zeus, not because he's like, fear me, yeah. but because he's like, you know, insecure and paranoid and like twitchy and like a regular guy, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It sounds, it sounds pretty batshit, but what a cast. And... I love that David Thewlis always, like, evil gods are just becoming his, like, forte. Like, he's Ares oh, yeah. in Wonder Woman. Yep. Now he's Hades here. Yep. Who do you guys think would be good for Hades in the Disney Hercules? Disney announced they're going to do the live-action Hercules as their next big live-action adaptation. Obviously, can't get James Woods back because... No, why would you oh, want to? a toxic personality Yeah, why would you want to? His politics don't click with this. I will say, he fucking... He kicks ass in her. He's so good. It's one of his best performances ever, just the voice. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm excited for that one, too, because I feel like these live-action adaptations do better the less I am fond of the source material. So, like, of yeah. the live-action ones, like Jungle Book, I really like it because I don't really care about the original Jungle Book. You know what I mean? Um, I, I know, uh, there was some, some fan casting online of people trying to pitch Bruce Campbell as Hades. And now I can't get that out of my brain. That's very good. I like that. that. I can, I can see that you're partial as uh, we, as we all should be. Yeah. I was thinking James Spader, but I like your idea better. I like James Spader. Let's move on. Amazon (laughs) ordered a sequel to the classic 80s sitcom. Who's the boss for its ad supported freebie, formerly IMDb TV. Now it's freebie. The Who's the Boss sequel project, by the way, has been bouncing around for a long time, for a few years now. Like, Alyssa Milano and Tony Danza are both coming back. It's being produced by Norman Lear's company, like the same people who did the One Day at a Time revival. They're bringing this one back, too. And they've been pitching everybody. Like, they really wanted to make this happen. So Amazon's free service was the eventual taker. So Alyssa Milano and Tony Danza, they're coming back. Uh, Samantha and Tony Maselli still live together in the same house. It's a necessity. It's a necessity to bring this back because in the original series, they never a- answered the titular question of who is that boss? Is it like, is it just a rhetorical? Is there not a boss? Are we the viewer the boss? Like, th- they have to answer that question. It, it, 
it's Tony. I mean, because the idea was that Judith Light was the boss because she, she hired him, but he she pays came the in, bills. But he she came paid. in and took over, you know, with his with his down home yeah, Italian American charm. But then you have Mona; she's the like the grand dame of the household. <laughs> but then the kids, like you gotta cater to those kids. And it, Danny Pintaro was the boss. Yeah. It rotates. I what? think. Wasn't this a recurring bit in Community about the the, yes. cla- the who's the boss class of determining who's the boss? <laughs> it, it is. It's about determining who's the boss. I also, I don't remember what comedian this is, but he does an impression of Tony Danza that is just him saying character names from who's the boss. It was like Moner, Angela, Samantha. <laughs> Samantha. Anyway, I don't remember. That's funny. Uh, yeah, no, so we don't know. No word on Judith Light or Danny Pintaro. They were also series regulars, still still alive, still working, could be coming back. We don't know. We do know that Catherine Hellman, who played Mona, passed away in 2019. R.I.P. to the great Catherine Hellman, also a featured player in Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Yes. Soap. Oh, she was a regular on the classic comedy series Soap. Let me ask, let me pose a question to both of you gentlemen. Uh, Mona was a very amorous Right. Yeah, she was. Um, this was a huge. You, this was a huge thing in the eighties and nineties for some reason. The like. Yes, Randy, I was going to ask. I was going oh. to ask who. Um, who was um the more randy, amorous, uh, older like septuagenarian, hmm. Mona, or uh Rue McClanahan? Blanche from Golden Girls. Yeah, it, it to me it's obvious. Like Blanche is the iconic horny old lady of, of classic TV. Yeah, you gotta go with Blanche, right? Yeah. <laughs> to my mind, nobody nailed that role better than Rue McClanahan. She's the queen. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, but like, but the, this trope, this trope contained, like there were more, that the, the horny old lady was like a huge deal for a few years there. I don't really know why. Let's bring it back. Let's it was, question. It was bring 80s it back. was horny old bring lady. and then back. And then 90s was like weed smoking old lady who can talk street. Like that was what we got oh. into. And then I was like, like the rapping granny thing mm-hmm. took over. You guys remember the rapping granny? Come right? on, we all remember the rapping. We all granny. remember. And, and in the aughts, and in the aughts, it was the serial killer granny, right? Mm-hmm. We all remember all sure. of this murder, bloody murder, serial old, killer, old yeah. murder ladies, yeah, grannies and thing. grannies and entrails. Well, because even um, even in uh, like something about Mary, she's like that. The, the, the oh yeah, got the the horny landlady. Like there, there was a huge. It was a huge thing. Anyhow, let's move on, folks. Apple TV Plus will host its first ever San Diego Comic-Con panels this year. Apple, Tim Apple, going to Comic-Con. We're going to get sessions based on Severance for All Mankind and Mythic Quest, along with, you know, they'll do some, like, The Art of Writing with a bunch of Apple creators. You know, like, they're doing a few of those. But then these are the three shows that they're getting breakout panels, like big Hall H panels of their own. Severance for All Mankind, Mythic Quest. I support it because I like those sh- specifically Mythic Quest and Severance. It's just why wa- they're getting their own individual Hall H panels. I don't know if it's Hall H. I oh, okay. shouldn't have spoken out of turn. They're getting their own panels. Oh, okay, I don't know okay, if they're okay. going to be main say, stage Hall panels. H feels or what. like a lot. I I threw in Hall H because it's like Comic Con lingo, Comic-Con, but that's the main stage. I don't know. I mean, I will say I think it's possible Severance could sneak onto the main stage. It's a it's a really big show among nerd. Circles. The, yeah, the people and the people who've watched it love it. I don't know how many eyeballs have gotten on it. But. And you've got, I mean, I don't know everybody they're bringing, but certainly Adam Scott will be there. Ben Stiller will be there. But pro, I mean, if you bring, you know, Christopher Walken, John Turturro, yeah. like you, you could Fish get Arquette. some names. 
pay up, Patricia Arquette. You I can just, get some real, some real. I talent. just wonder if uh, Tim Cook is going to uh, also just like sneak in iPhone 14 or something, <laughs> like while he like launch that on Hall H. Turn it into an Apple uh, seminar. Yeah, they're almost done talking about Mythic Quest, and then he comes out. Just one more thing, folks. Yeah, and yeah, open yeah. up your iPhone. Boom, boom. Uh, Everybody's got the new U2 album. Just it's <laughs> on there. Just go find it. Be excited. Get excited. Yeah. Uh, I do, although I do support that, you know, because I got a new iPhone recently. That's how I started watching Apple Plus is because I got the three-month trial. Yeah. Oh, and nicely then, done. And then Severance, you know, Severance was on there. God bless. Love it. But yeah, that was my, that was my thing, too. It's like, if you've watched Severance, you love Severance. But how many people are watching? Not enough people are watching Severance. Right. I mean, I yeah. think that's what this is probably about, is like, yeah. this is one of the things they're going to do to start getting the word out in a mainstream way. Hey, you, you, we need, I mean, I, I've been even to people in my life, like desperately telling them you yeah. got to sign up for Apple TV and watch Severance. I finally got my mom on board. She's watching Severance very soon. Oh, wow. She had to get through the morning show. That was first priority. That was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had to get through uh, uh, before. This was kind of before Severance was really, uh, had really started. But like I had Ted Lasso and Mythic Quest yeah. were the first two oh, yeah. that I. Mm -hmm. Mythic Quest was the very first Apple TV Plus series that I watched and went, oh, hey, they're like doing stuff that's worth checking out. I'm yep. going to, I'm going to keep watching this. So yeah, 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 yeah. Totally agree. I think those are, those are three of the. There are a lot of great Apple TV plus shows, but those those three make a lot of sense to me. As you you'd bring yeah. those to Comic Con. Those yeah, are I've heard good things big. about For All Mankind, but I haven't I haven't had a chance to check it out. I yet. haven't. I watched the first season, which was really good, but I haven't okay. caught up, and I I really need to. Uh, last news story before we get into comics in a more in depth and thought provoking way. According to Saturday Night Live star Chloe Fineman, now she plays Anna Delvey on Saturday Night Live. She's there. She's the SNL cast member who does the Anna Delvey impression. She ordered a portrait of herself painted by jailed art con artist Anna Delvey, uh, but has yet to receive her artwork in the mail. Anna Delvey hosted a remotely because she's uh, in prison. Yes. She remotely hosted a recent art show at the Public Hotel in New York. One of the pieces that was on display was a portrait she painted of Chloe Feynman, who does the impression of her on SNL. Chloe Feynman saw it and was like, oh my God, I love it. Venmoed Anna Delvey some money. Apparently, according to New York Papers, has not yet received her actual. You know, first rule of Fight Club, don't Venmo Anna Delvey money. Second rule of Fight Club: Don't loan her money. You know she yeah. is, uh, yeah. Like you, you got, you got taken by the best of them. Yeah. I mean, if I were to make an argument, I would argue that this is the art. Her, her trying to buy this picture and then getting scammed by the person she portrays. That, that is the art. It's for all of us to enjoy. Yeah, that is yeah. the art. It's a whole performance piece. It's a, bigger than an installation. What is that? So, Lon, I don't know if the article you read told you that. So, did she do this painting while she was in prison? Yeah, yeah, she's been. That's one of the. That's one of the things she's doing while she's jailed is like, getting getting into to painting. Great. Uh, do you <laughs> do you think this is reflective of most people's prison experiences? Getting into the arts and hosting art shows well, while in prison. I mean, I mean, she's not in like you know federal lockdown max secure. Like she didn't go to Leavenworth. Yeah. So like I, I I it's it's different. It, you know our. Our vision of prison, when I think of prison, I immediately go to, like, Oz, you yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. mayor of Kingstown, and it's like, 
brutal, like, like the worst of the worst. Like, you know, you're getting just destroyed every day. Yeah. yeah. Inventing Anna dropped and like she now like Anna Delvey is she's just like stacking clout and like she's yeah. like, oh, um, I can get back to the life that I want. I feel like mm-hmm. she's just trying to like inch her way back and retain relevancy. She doesn't have to trade her cigarettes with anybody. <laughs> no, yeah. she can she can trade art for cigarettes. There you go. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I feel like she's she's in some kind of, a, you know, like midway between prison where it's like, okay, she's got like a room and she could get paint supplies and stuff. It's not, it's not, it's not like that. I have not seen the show. I'm not brushed up on the specifics of her. But, you know, I just it's it's nice that she's able to pursue the arts. And I feel like other people incarcerated for other things should have that same opportunity is, I think, yes, what I'm getting right. at. I think I agree with you. It's it's not that I'm upset that Anna Delvey is getting decent treatment. It's that, well, being in prison, you should be able to explore your love of art if if yeah. you're so inclined. It shouldn't be this, like, nonstop 24-7, you're being tortured horror show. Like, yeah. why we, we've made that up. That doesn't that doesn't make people less likely to do crime. No in the future like there's no reason to make it like that people people come out upset not reformed a lot of the time uh yeah no also, prison is like where we send you to train you to become a better and more effective criminal exactly like, well, everybody yeah. knows uh, that like hey what should we do with this guy who just started to do crime let's send him into a room with a thousand people who know how to do crime better than him let's send him to crime college but it yeah, also makes me think college. of one yeah. of my favorite jokes in atlanta which was al in the what was it an amsterdam prison yes <laughs> uh, so good right where it's it's like beyond goodfellas like it's like a hotel they're like hey, yeah, can I check it's, out it is like hours? a hotel <laughs> he's like napping he's like i'm gonna check out in a few hours i'm gonna finish my nap yeah, like yeah. that pablo escobar narcos prison yeah, yeah oh, exactly. also uh just want to say shout out Chloe Feynman. I got to work with her a bunch at uh, UCB. I directed her oh, on the character boy. team there we and uh, taught it. her as well. So uh, I, I love seeing her success and I hope she recovers from this uh, from this unrequited Venmo uh, to Anna Delvey. Mm. But uh, Chloe Feynman is seriously very funny, great impressionist, and uh, glad to see her doing great. Hollywood Rudnick, we get it. You know the celebrities. You know all the stars. Listen. Listen, I know all the stars and none of them will return my phone calls. <laughs> so you got to talk to them through your podcast. Through my I podcast. I understand. Folks, uh, Lon, that is the news, correct? That's the news. That's it. I'm done. Awesome. Coming up, we are going to get to know DJ Woolridge just that much better. DJ, thank you for being here. Very excited to have you. Uh, right out of the gate, um, Lon was telling me uh, pre-show that you have a comic book that you've been working on in the offing. I would love to hear anything and everything you've got to say on that. Uh, please talk to us about it. First off, thank you for having me. Uh, very happy to be here. Love you both. And um, yeah, I'm uh, on Kickstarter right now. If you go to hellbentcomicbook.com, you can check out Hellbent Volume 2. Um, this is the follow-up to uh, my hit Kickstarter comic from last year, Hellbent. It, it's a story that follows a uh, young trans woman named Jezzy who has incredible supernatural abilities, and she is on the run from a cult of religious fanatics uh, with the help of a occult assassin named Nick. I like to compare him to, like, if you combine John Wick and John Constantine, you'd have Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So this is the continuation of that story. I co-wrote it with my good friend Jana July. Um, and if you're just a fan of comics like uh, Something is Killing the Children or Sandman 
or Preacher. Uh, two of those shows have two of those comics have shows coming to Netflix, so I'm sure you'll talk about them on Binge Boys. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, we were just talking about Neil Gaiman earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's in the vein of that kind of like a m- more mature dark fantasy. Uh, has some horror elements, has some thriller elements, has some action elements, but kind of like tackling a lot of of um, very timely issues, issues that I kind of wish were a little less timely uh, right at the yeah. second. Um, but also, oh, are you talking about uh, us uh, sliding into a theocracy and uh... yeah, yeah, you know when we came, well, so when we did the comic last year, it was just kind of it just it just was the story. It was just the story that we both wanted to tell, and we worked on it. And then in the years since, it's like. Ah, Damn. Uh, you know what I mean? It's just kind of become a lot more pertinent. Um, but but on the like on the fun side, it's like it's got a lot of uh, action adventure, big uh, cosmic concepts. Uh, it is for mature audience. So my audience so you got some sex and some violence in there. Um, but, you know, there's some elements in, in the vein of the of, of binging things. It's got some elements. It is it is a modern set, but it's got some elements of, of like stuff from like Witcher and stuff like that. So I just think if you're into something a little bit darker, a little bit grittier, a little bit challenging, a little bit fun, you'll dig Hellbent. And if you missed out on volume one, there are tiers where you can get a uh, volume one as well, both volumes one and two. So, and that's like 88 pages of Very comic. cool. And uh, DJ, you were talking about how it connects to elements that are pertinent today, but the way you were describing it, it sounded like the like the delivery mechanism I like for good like social commentary, which is like, oh, the medicine is hidden in the ice cream. Like you're not beating people over the head with, oh, here's an issue that we need to talk about, but it's there within um, some awesome content. It just Absolutely. happens to be structured that way. Can you talk a little bit about that, balancing that? So both Jane and I, uh, we first met back in high school. Uh, we, we were going to the same church. Um, and so that's obviously, that was a big influence on why we wanted to talk about this stuff. Cause we grew up in the same, uh, community and we have kind of an understanding of that community. And it, it, for me, there, you, there's a big difference between like telling a story and preaching, having grown up around a lot of preaching. 100%. Yeah. It's not, we're trying, not trying to preach anything. We're just trying to tell a story, but that story also exists. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a continuum of our lives and the things we're experiencing and things that we want to talk about and things that we're struggling with. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it's, it's, uh, that, that messaging is not us trying to preach a message to the audience is just trying to talk about the reality of the world we live in and hopefully be able to, I mean, that's kind of one of the beauties of storytelling for me is it's, it's, it's about communication. You and I and Lon are having a conversation right now, not necessarily face to face, but in real time. The beauty of art is it is a conversation between you and the person engaging with that art across time and space in different circumstances. Um, and hopefully you can kind of come to a mutual understanding. And so hopefully no matter where people are at in their lives, they can read this. Um, and will it, it, because, you know, the, our lead Jesse is, is a trans woman, but at the end of the day, it's a coming of age story. And the specifics of her coming of age story are, might be different than yours or mine because of circumstance. And also because it's fiction, it's in a fictional world. Uh, and, you know what I mean? Where her, her father is the devil and having to come to like literally the devil and having to come to terms with that. But the idea of coming of age, the idea of getting older and trying to figure out who you are, I think is pertinent to everybody. Same reason I can watch Miss Marvel. And even though I did not grow up in a Muslim community in New Jersey, I can recognize the the benchmarks of 
of her life and relate to universal that. elements that yeah we can uh, that are accessible and relatable for yeah. sure yeah 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 I appreciate that when you're writing your own comic book I'm just sort of fascinated by by this because like we all know the sort of industrial process of like a Marvel and how that yeah. works but for your for your system is it is it similar like are you and your co-writer you're you're doing a, a script and then you're sending it to artists and and they're setting it on you know like or are you is it more collaborative in terms of everybody kind of hammering out what the imagery is going to be, what the characters are going to be, and then you kind of return to your corner and figure out what they say. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like that. It's phases, right? So, like um, uh, Jane and I, this is this is supposed to be um, uh, essentially a three part story, and we're part two of that three part story. And Jane and I, it, before we even started, kind of mapped out what those three parts would be. And then we take that treatment and we hand it out, hand, uh, hammer it out into a script. Typically, like I'll and and uh, more to your point, you know, uh, we've you know we all write or whatever. And movie scripts are kind of more loosey goosey than like prose. Uh, comic scripts, it's the wild west. Everybody kind of does their own thing. So figuring that out, figuring that system out, uh, uh, took a minute uh, back in my first comic uh, chaos theory, which was years ago now. So I'll usually do a, a pass and after we've Jane and I have hammered out the treatment. I'll do a pass. I'll send it to her. She does a pass. Send it back until finally we're pretty good on it. Then we'll send it to the artists and um, they kind of interpret it. And we have a back and forth with them of like, okay, this is kind of what we were thinking. And, you know, it'll change. And they'll, and, and because I want to leave room, I, I, I don't like getting notes. I don't, uh, um, or at least I don't like getting notes from people that don't care about uh, my process so when, when I'm doing stuff like that. So I want to be very collaborative. I don't want to just like, no, that's not what I want. No, that's not what I want. No, that's, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, give people room to do what they're good at because I'm not an artist. They are. Um, and so we'll, we'll hash that out. And then once we get the art, then we'll, uh, I'm actually in the process now of going back into the script, um, before I send it to the editor and kind of like looking at the art and how it's changed and looking at what we wrote and kind of like melding it back into a way that is 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 as cohesive as possible. That's awesome. So I guess it's a big old mess. At the end of the day, it's a big old mess. <laughs> well, because like, well, I think about it, like I, I've never written a com I love comics. I've never written a comic myself. And I always think about stuff like, you know, when a, when a person is screaming and you get like, ah, mm -hmm. and like across the whole panel, it's like, well, that when was that figured out? Like, because that had to be integrated in the art. They can't just add that later, like text. That's part of the drawing. Yeah. So, like stuff like that, I'm always fascinated by. Like, well, how do you know before you do the drawing that you need? You know, like yeah, well, you we're doing that. Changes yeah, we're doing that right screen. now because I'll have I'll have some sound effects and and I'll have a sound effect and we'll send it to the artist because um, we have an incredible art team. We have <clears throat> Heather Vaughn on uh, main interior illustrations with some guest artists that are doing incredible work. And then we have Francesca Cittarelli on colors and Haley Rose Lyon on letters. And so now we're the, the art interior art and colors are done. We just need the lettering. So I'll like do a sound effect and like, here's what I'm thinking. And then a lot of times, you know, the letter, so sometimes it'll be fine. Sometimes the letter will come back and be like, that's impossible. Like that's what you want is not a thing that can be done. Um, <laughs> right. And so then we, then, you know, we tweak it. Uh, uh, and that's, but that's kind of one of the beauty of it is I don't, I'm not required to know all the things. Um, and sometimes it almost gets to like uh, uh, almost like legal proceedings. Like, what's the precedent? Like, what 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 has been done in the past to to justify what we're trying to do here? As far as like uh, different conventions, uh, as far as like formatting and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of give and take. I don't know what it would be like to the, uh, work for one of the big two, Marvel or DC. 
I imagine like you sent off a script and the editor's the one talking to the artists and there's not right. a lot it, of it just it's more it feels to me it's more like a factory system where yeah. it's like you're you're one part and you do your little thing to it and then it moves down the conveyor belt and you never see it again and then one day it's a comic book. Yeah. Like yeah. that's my impression of it, never having actually done the work. But uh, you know, obviously when it's a, a group of friends working in collaboration, it's gonna be like a very different, you know, sort of system. You probably have to essentially invent invent for yourself on some level. Yeah, you just kind of figure it out with with the different um, collaborators and, and what works for them and try and lean into what they're good at. Um, uh, right. Uh, so it's it's been really cool. And also it's just like, um, you, comics are a visual medium and the art is so important and it's so cool to get stuff back from such talented artists of like seeing your story um, realized in their vision. It's really, it's really, really cool. Yeah. That's gotta be like particularly gratifying because it's like, this was a little nugget that existed in my brain. And now I'm looking at it and like, you know, like just brought to life with color and also it's that, that's got to be exciting and fun yeah. to get those pages back. It's like Dali, but you know, people. Cause when you're doing like, when you look at like movies or shows and stuff and it's live action, there's only so much stylistic things you can do. Whereas each artist, uh, each artist's voice is so distinct. And I think that's one of the beauties of the comic medium um, it was one of the reasons why I don't know if you guys ever talked about the Sweet Tooth show on your show, but I couldn't. Jeff Lemire's artistic voice is so specific that when I saw the mm. live action, I was like, well, I don't care about that. I don't, you know, what I mean, that's not, you know, I mean, it's not, to me, it's not, my brain doesn't process it as the same thing. So it's like, that's fine. I'll let it, you know, <laughs> that's not for me. For sure. Yeah, it's, it's always fascinating how that, like, I, I had that. Concerned, I read the book Under the Banner of Heaven, the John Krakauer book years yeah. ago now, uh, when it first came out. Um, and now they did that Hulu series, and I was like, how? It just feels impossible. Like, how that book is so non-narrative. And they added a lot. Like, that's what they did to make it into a TV show, is they invented the Andrew Garfield character. Got and it. so it's being told through this new character who sort of strings everything together. But... Uh, it ended up being really good, but yeah, sometimes you, you they they adapt things, and it's like, how could you possibly take this thing that is so of itself and like put it into a narrative medium? That's my concern for, and we I, I don't think any of us have seen it, but it's kind of my concern for the Sandman Netflix series, and it's kind mm -hmm. of like, oh, oh yeah, big time. It, it reminds me of Watchmen, where it's like you you took a very literalist approach, but it's like that's not what this thing is, you know. <laughs> Yeah, um, I the those early trailers made me pretty nervous about that one. Yeah. Where it really it just feels like, oh, okay, you're just gonna like, here's what happens, like mm -hmm. scene by scene, here's what happens, and it's like, yeah, but it's not. Yeah, it just looks like a pale, handsome boy, not like the god of gods, like li the literal embodiment of dreams. <laughs> yeah, and it, it also it has like. I... We're going to get on a little sidetrack, folks. I apologize. But so many modern shows, especially these streaming shows, have this, like, I don't know, it's a flattened out sort of look. Like, you can tell that there's a foreground where people are standing and action is happening. Yeah. And then there's, like, a background that's being digitally sort of inserted in there. And, like, the mm -hmm. Star Wars Disney Plus shows, I think, are getting the, they're, they're taking the brunt of this criticism right yeah. now. And with good cause. But... It's it's a little bit everywhere. Yeah. I feel like Star Trek Stranger Worlds somehow is avoiding this. Like their effect sequences feel a little bit more 
cinematic and like lived into me, but a lot of the Netflix shows like Shadow and Bone yeah. has that feel too. Mm -hmm. And that's my big worry about Salmon is it kind of has that same look like Charles dances on a stage, yeah. but nothing behind him is there. And you can, you can psychologically feel it. Like yeah. I know that this is Charles dance in a Burbank warehouse and not mm -hmm. in a castle. And I just like, I can't get my brain to believe it. So yeah, you almost want something like, um, I think the way that um, the Cohen uh, was it Joel Cohen who did the tragic mm -hmm. Mac Macbeth? Yeah, tragic like, yes. Macbeth. With something like Sandman, you want you almost want that level of almost borderline abstraction. Abstraction. Yeah. Exactly. I think I said that exact word. It's like it should be taking place in like an ethereal realm, yeah. not like a field. And it's yeah. always in like a field. And it's like, no, they, I can, it just feels like they're in a field. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can stand in a field in a cloak and be like, it's time. Yeah. That's not yeah. impressive yeah. to me. It, but it's still not going to be supernatural on as much as you want to cosplay as uh, Sandman. No. That's, that's my that's my dream because we look so much alike. Me and the Sandman character. Me and Dream. Hey, listen, Lon, we established in the comics that everybody kind of sees him differently. He, so everybody. So some people, he's like, "Hey, ah, look at me! I'm the Sandman." What are you dreaming about? I'm not going to sit here and tell people that they can't cosplay as something they don't necessarily look like in the comic books. <laughs> oh, so, uh, shit. Lon, wow. yeah, Sorry to you, be unwoke here, folks. I didn't um, mean to body shame all of you Sandman cosplayers. Uh, DJ, uh, please uh, tell people again how they can find that Kickstarter and um, if there are any, are there any like promotional tiers or anything fun to the Kickstarter? Yeah, so you can go to hellbentcomicbook.com. If you go to Kickstarter, you can look up Hellbent uh, uh, Volumes 1 and 2. Um, but hellbentcomicbook.com is the easiest way to get there. And there's a lot of cool stuff. So we've got incredible variant covers from um, Davi Go and Jen St. Ange. Those will not appear in other, this is, they're exclusive to this campaign. You're not gonna be able to get those covers ever again. Also, if you look at Heather Vaughn's art, our interior artist, incredible artist, if you dig her work, there is, you can, there's a tier where you can be drawn into a scene with other, by Heather, with other characters from the comic, like Nick and Jesse. Nice. Um, I think that's super cool. And of course, that tier comes with all of the things. Um, you can, like I said, you can get, if you missed out on volume one, there are tiers where you can get uh, volume one again. We also have the, the tarot plays in a very important part of the comic, part of Jesse's journey. So in each of the campaigns, we've included exclusive tarot cards that feature characters from the comic. We introduced two no, new ones in this campaign. You can get the other the old ones as add-ons or part of the higher tier. Also, the just of, as of this recording, we hit our second stretch goal. So all the physical wow. uh, rewards come with these stickers, our little hellbent seal, and those will now be glow in the dark stickers, which is super cool. I was really excited uh, when I figured that out, uh, how to do that. So uh, I'm very excited about that, and and we'll be we'll working to our next stretch goal soon. So I'll be announcing that soon. So a lot of cool stuff. Hellbentcomicbook.com. Very rad, and this is the second piece of uh, what uh, is intended to be a trilogy. That's right? the goal, yeah. And right, this is they were doing pretty well, so it looks like the the trilogy should be happening. So keep your peepers oh, peeled rad. for that. That's rad. And uh, DJ, um, also, uh, do you want to tell us just a little bit and uh, give a plug to your podcast that you host with uh, the wonderful Roxy Stryer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only stupid answers at wherever wherever podcasts are sold. Uh, no, you can. Uh, Roxy and I every week are are just talking about different stuff. Our most uh, recent one, we're going to be doing our Thor episode soon. 
Mm-hmm. Stay tuned for that. Uh, we just had um, Augustine Rios from Heroes Reforged on to talk about our top five favorite MCU movies. Um, we also do uh, a little bit of news segments every week. Our, I don't know about your all's, our news has been like dominated by Ezra Miller for the past. Oh, we can't man. escape them. They're every every week. Um, I hope they uh, find peace, get it together here. Yes. Uh, yeah, yes. Tough situation. How, can I, I got an Ezra Miller question. <laughs> how How is it that every time we hear about them, they are living with a different family. How, who, who are these families that are just adopting grown men? It's always like they were staying in Minnesota with a mom and her three kids. And it's like, well, well slow down. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, well now I, they live, now they're, they live on a, a, their own marijuana farm with yeah. guns. And, I yeah. loved, I love that Rolling Star article, how much hay they made out of like, well, did you know we, they have more than two pot plants? Like, calm down. That's not the headline of the story. Calm down. <laughs> I, I feel like every time we check in with Ezra Miller, which is only, it's like 10 days in between these stories, yeah. they're in the midst of like, it's the next season of the Ezra Miller show, and the plot has totally changed. You know, like they're well, rebooting every season. So so like this time it's, well, they're, they're pot farmers now. This time it's like, well, they're running a, a you know, psychic uh, tarot card reading shop out of the front, and then family of eight living in the back. The next time it's like, and then, they're in a trailer park. And it's like, how is this possible? Attacking someone at a bar, grooming yeah. someone, choking yeah, someone. They're right. Oh, it's yeah. violence is following all at all of yeah. these destinations. I'm just wondering how they're, even with a movie star, like with all that money and access, it seems impossible to embed yourself in this many weird domestic situations well, so quickly yeah and it's it's wild i think the wild part to me because the one we just covered was the the reveal of the finally the backstory of the initial choking incident that kind of like right. yes. you know was mm-hmm. the first red flag that the re- all of us saw Whoever, like picked somebody up and like slammed them down by yeah. their throat yeah in europe and so and it's one of those things where it's like okay this person has been a problem for a while and people knew about it and the system kind of like coalesce. So, so I, I think the reason we keep feeling like there's these new new layers is they've all been there. We're just finding out about it. Right. And to me, I would like to think the lesson would be, and the problem is I'm uh, counting on people that never learn lessons to learn lessons. But for oh. studios, the second, like the first choking incident went down, it's like, oh, it was before they'd filmed The Flash. It's before, it's like, okay, right. we need to get on top of this now. And it's, not try. Yeah. And the instinct shouldn't be to cover it up. The instinct's always to cover it up for some reason, and it's always the worst instinct. Take care of it, fix the problem, and then you won't be sitting on a billion dollar flash or or like however million it, millions of dollars of flash yeah. they spent on flash. It's a lot of people, I think, running these studios or working in these jobs who are are from a different generation when it really was possible to just sweep things under the rug, and they blew over, and then. You were fine. Yeah, and, and catering to a star's bad behavior and, and sometimes, they, like Russell Crowe throwing yeah. a cell phone right. at somebody. Like there, there's so many of these quaint, they seem quaint now, yeah. uh, where it's just like, oh, so-and-so was labeled as a bad boy or something. Yeah. And, uh, oh, this guy is a fucking sexual assaulter or something. Or this guy's a, you know, has a horrific, you know, uh, you know, some track record on certain behavior so yeah. yeah and it's and it's a chicken and egg thing at this point too it's like did so many actors get away with stuff for so long because there was this permissive system or was it you know like uh, who, who knows at this point where the problem is it's just like well we don't live in that world anymore yeah if you become aware that one of the people working on all of these films with you is a huge problematic person 
it's it's never going to just go away entirely. There's always going to be somebody on Twitter. There's always going to be some journalist. There's always going to be some people checking in on it, looking in on it. There's always going to be another incident. And so, yeah, exactly what DJ is saying. Like, better to just take care of yeah, the problem. Yeah, just got to resolve it before you're sitting on a movie that you can't market. <laughs> well, I mean, two, the Warner Brothers, they made them the center of two franchises. Yes. They're, mm-hmm. they're both DC and the Wizarding World. At this the point. funny thing about the Wizarding World one is they weren't the ones tanking that one. They, they, they weren't the, they, they were only, <laughs> they were only it, one piece right. of, a, of a much larger set of problems for that it's franchise. Also, it's also fascinating that, uh, like good has been good in movies. Like yes. uh, we need to talk about Kevin. It's a great performance. Like I've, I've, I've enjoyed their work before, Yeah, but it's not like you couldn't find somebody else to nail the flash and credence barebone. It's not, yeah. it's not like they're doing exceptional work that we have to, it's like, Forgettable character. Like I don't. I don't know. No. Yeah, maybe they were like, the we'll get it under control until they didn't, and now Bring we have like, yeah, it's fucking. Yeah, just get some other gangly dude, and you're on your way. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and here's the Frank Langella portion. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, let's do some reviews. How? Let's move on to some. Reviews. Good idea, uh, DJ. Thank you for uh, filling us in on. Uh, the comic book and the levels and the story. This sounds really cool and uh, wishing you much luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Congrats, man. We all watched the Paul Schrader film, The Card Counter, written and directed by Paul Schrader, uh, who I first came to love as the writer of Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. He really is kind of Hollywood royalty uh, when you think about it with his track record. And as a kid, you were you were a huge uh, when I was in high school. Taxi Driver fan? Hell yeah! When I was in high school, (laughs) uh, which I I consider a kid, um, talking Taxi Driver was the shit, bruh. So uh, yeah, and I respect Raging Bull as a work of art. I was just, when you said that, you were it was like you were talking about, like, as I, who I first at a very young age became aware, and I was like, what Paul Schrader project did How Love is a Kid? They're all kind of for grown groans. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe Couldn't I got to tell where you were going with that. a little too early, and that explains yeah. uh, a Couldn't couple of Couldn't tell you were going. Like, my childhood <laughs> favorite, Affliction. Like, I was like, what is... Oh, Affliction is fucking great. Nick Nolte. Oh, Big my God. Big Cat People fan, or I don't know. Uh, so Paul Schrader's been on a little bit of this uh, revenge tour. I, I feel like this this film reminded me in tackling war crimes, extrajudicial uh, like uh, uh, handling of combatants of war in uh, Abu Jarab. It, the whole thing reminded me of tackling that and the U.S. government a little bit the way he and Ethan Hawke went after the Catholic Church in first reform. Well, it's really environmental. It's the the Schrader thing is always like like a person who's been pushed and pushed. And pushed. It's a man, almost always pushed yes. to the to the brink to the to the brink of insanity by the system, by the government, by whatever. All of these forces pushing down on him until he snaps. You know, and it's and it's 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 that vintage. I mean, everything from you know that's that's 
That's American Gigolo in its way. That's, you know, Light Sleeper in its way. That's uh, obviously Bringing Rolling Thunder. Dead. Taxi Driver. Uh, the Yakuza even, his his, his screenwriting yeah. debut. Uh, just uh, FYI, uh, the uh, this film in a nutshell, Oscar Isaac plays a veteran who is jailed for war crimes. And while he's, uh, he's in He's one of jail, the torturers from Abu Ghraib. Yeah, he was one of the guys, like he was in that photograph, you know? Yes, like, yes. Pointing at which, the guy. Like, yeah, th- this... They recall those scenes and those elements with some cool stylistic stuff in this movie. Uh, And then in jail, he becomes very good at cards, gambling, games of chance. And uh, so we catch up with him when he's in his casino life in this film. So, yeah, uh, DJ, please uh, weigh in a little bit. No, question for you guys. How do you think Paul Schrader got from card counter guy to... Uh, war crime guy how did it where how did in those two how did those two thoughts connect in his brain <laughs> i think for almost all of these you really do have to go back to the searchers the, that that western with with john wayne yeah 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 that movie had a really outsized mental impact on paul schrader yeah. and so many of his films take that as like a sort of starting place i mean taxi driver obviously for for, for people who haven't seen the searchers uh, John Wayne is this like old sort of cow, old gunfighter, old cowboy. His niece is kidnapped by a, I think it's the the Apache. Yeah. It's a, a native, you know, a yeah. very like 50s Native yeah. American tribe, yeah. <laughs> as stereotypical as you'd sort of think. They kidnap this niece and take her away. Wayne leads a posse to like go after her, like rescue his niece from the Apache. The plan throughout the whole movie is he's going to kill her because she's been spoiled. I'm making air quotes. Yeah. He's presuming that the Apaches have raped her. They're making her one of their own. And so he's got to kill her. It's the only solution. But when he gets there, when he does rescue her, when he sees her, he hugs her. He loves her. He's not going to kill her. That's the happy ending of the Searchers. Yeah, Searchers is basically John Ford going like, wait, are we the baddies? (laughs) Right. And and it did. So if you think about Taxi Driver, it's that same like Travis Bickle on this deadly journey into the underbelly to rescue Jodie Foster. And then if you think about Hardcore, that brilliant film he made with George C. Scott, he's he's delving into the L.A. porn underworld to to save his daughter who's gone missing in Los Angeles. And then I think this one, too, it's... Oscar Isaac is delving into this, this going back into this nightmare that he's done everything he can to escape. And I think that's the the connection Schrader's making is the cards and the card counting and the gambling and the constantly paying attention, because that's what it is. The challenge of gambling is paying attention over the course of a very long time, because mm. he even says it in the movie, like poker mm-hmm. is mostly waiting. You're waiting for hours, for days, and then something happens. And that mindfulness is how Oscar Isaac escapes the PTSD, yeah. the memory, the shattering memories of what he did, of what he experienced. The paying attention to the cards is what allows him to escape. And it's why he and spends all his time. similarly to, what you were, to uh, what, how you were describing those other films, he... He basically is trying to white knight and save Ty Sheridan's right. And that's character. what I'm saying. He's going back into these tragic memories just like— Not to get into too many spoilers here. Right. Just like George C. Scott, just like John Wayne, he's going back into this deadly, dangerous territory one more time on behalf of this kid he wants to save— uh, Ty Sheridan. I also was writing... Oh, I'll let you go, DJ. I'm sorry. Another question I had for you all that I couldn't quite crack um, uh, watching the movie, and it sounds like we're not doing spoilers, so it, 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 his, he has I a... I don't he, think it's that big. Okay, he has a hotel room habit. 
Yes. Oh, yes. I, w- I was like, I don't, am I dumb? I don't know. I don't know what this means. <laughs> I've, at a certain point, I wanted the, like, what I wanted was the character to literally, literally unpack that in a conversation with another character. Yeah, which or almost to, never like, want, but this case was like, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I, yeah, I just had to chalk it up to, like, oh, the Spartan life of the military, of prison, does he feel like. D- d- did he develop some sort of OCD, which it's clearly some sort of, uh, he's got this. So FYI, everybody, uh, the character, it's not a huge spoiler. You'll see it quickly in the film and often after it's revealed in the film. Uh, he goes into a hotel room. He takes all the pictures off the wall and takes, you know, the lamps and everything. And then he wraps everything, the bed, chairs, and the remaining lamps in the room in cloth, in white cloth, to give the room this weird uh, ethereal appearance. I think it's two things. One, yeah. he's recreating the the prison cell, which is where he felt most comfortable. He says at the beginning, he never knew how much prison would sort of work for him. The routine, again, the the mindfulness, like the, yeah. you always have to find a way to like distract your mind, you're reading, you're doing this. So I think he's recreating that. That's what calms him, is being back in that sort of a, completely blank room, like a prison cell. But I think it's also that he's paranoid. Uh, probably just PTSD or trauma related. It does not really seem like there are people after him. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. he's going under a fake name. He's always on the move. He's, you know, he's like, he doesn't want to be notable. He doesn't want to make enough that people notice him. He doesn't want to be on the professional gambling circuit. I think that's part of it. He's wrapping everything up so he doesn't leave DNA hair, eyelashes. Nobody could come back to this room and be like he was here. That makes sense think, to me. That tracks. I think that's I think that's part of it. Is that's why everything has to, every surface has to be covered because he's hyper aware of like I don't want people to know where I've been or follow me. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. All those explanations make sense to me. I was also going to say, did you guys ever see Paul Thomas Anderson's first film, Heart Eight? Heart he eight, originally yeah. called eight. it Sydney. Uh, I recently rewatched it because Philip Baker Hall, who stars in it, has uh, R.I.P. No. passed away. Uh, a lot of connections between. I have to feel like Schrader at some point made that connection in his own mind of like, oh, it's a little bit of a hard eight story. It's a, it's an older gambler who has this. He's walking around with. He's carrying this sort of feelings of guilt, these feelings of personal responsibility, and then he meets this young kid and he sees this opportunity to allay his guilt by helping this kid and sort of teaching him the ropes and trying to encourage him to like fix his life and get his shit together. Anyway, you're kind of interesting, interesting parallels between the two movies. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. that one. Sydney does not get as violent. As no, this. this one gets really troubling by the end. That one does not. Yeah. I, I, I felt like this was um, two halves of two good movies mm-hmm. that added up to a decent movie. I, I, I felt like it wasn't like perfectly massaged together. I felt like we could have gone deeper into the psyche of the compulsive gambler and casinos and that world. And I thought we could have gone deeper down the rabbit hole of just having to be a pawn in a brutal game in a place like Abu Jarab, you know? And I felt like, oh. It's Abu, Abu Ghraib, right? Is it Abu Jarab? And I've been saying it wrong. Listen, you say Jarab, I, I su- say Jarab. Let's Ghraib. call the whole thing off. All right, all right. I don't know. I could be wrong. It's a whole Raz Rachel Ghoul situation. <laughs> there you go. Have you guys seen Hardcore, by the way, that, that Paul Schrader film with George C. Scott? Uh, Everybody listening no. to this right now, 1979, Hardcore. 
It's fucking incredible. And it's the movie, you've seen this image of George C. Scott in a movie theater and there's something he's watching and it's making him like hold his head in his hands like, oh my God. Like it's the worst thing he's ever seen because that's his daughter in a porno. Peter Boyle, he's hired Peter Boyle, who's a private detective, to go to Los Angeles and find his missing daughter. He's this very religious man from the Midwest, George C. Scott. And Peter Boyle comes back, I believe it's Grand Rapids, Michigan, comes back to the town and... This is how Peter Boyle, he doesn't just say to George C. Scott, like, I found out that your daughter's making porn in Los Angeles. He figures the best way to deliver this message is to rent out a movie theater, have George C. Scott sit in the audience, and then project the porno starring his daughter onto the screen. Okay, 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 okay. I've not seen this movie, but can I, as you were describing it, I I actually feel like I can justify that decision. Because imagine your PI guy, I'm going to go tell this guy that his daughter's in porn. This guy's going to attack me. Right. But, no, that's he really is like he's like I'm gonna be just I'll be in the projection. Yeah, but if I show it, it to own. him, there's nothing. He's gonna he's gonna be so stunned. There's nothing. It's clearly yeah. this is clearly not me. I, I am just the messenger. I, well, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna hard disagree on this one because it seems like overkill to me. It, you, you know, you're showing a father the unseeable. The yeah, you, you're thinking that you would at least be like, do you want to see this, or I could just tell you about it. Yeah, I want yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. seems yeah. like uh, like the worst prank in the world yeah it's uh it's it's a great it's a great uh, totally got ripped off by the way by eight millimeter that nicholas cage movie they totally steal the the basic sort of premise and and structure yeah your daughter was in a snuff film well that one it's not he's it's uh the person whose daughter it is like hires him to find out about the snuff film or something right right but it's still the same basic can i say this about the card counter though it got me sad about moon Knight all over again because (laughs) oscar isaac is so good in this oh man and Mm -hmm. i specifically think the the scene because because a lot of it the conversations between people have a very like affected way about them uh that i had to assume it was intentional it was an intentional choice uh but the scene where it's him and uh, what is it ty sheridan yeah. yeah are in the diner together and he's and he's talking about the best hand of cards he's ever seen Yes. And that whole conversation and the way it unspools, I'm a sucker for that stuff. I love the the diner scene in Heat. I love the diner scene in Thief. Uh, I love it when you just yeah. get two characters and they're just shooting the shit and you kind of uncover deep truths about them in that moment. I love that stuff. So that whole sequence, I was like, I don't know how – I like how. I, it's like this movie's fine. That scene, it's like, oh, I love this scene. This scene was worth the price of admission alone just for this scene. <laughs> yeah, I disagree with you both. I really love the movie. There was one thing that I didn't really love about it, and neither of you have, have identified, or neither of you, it wasn't either of your least favorite things. There is, instead of a conventional score, he's got this singer-songwriter. And for most of the movie, it's just music, and it works okay. I didn't think it was great. It mm-hmm. kind of, it's, it's a little distracting at times, where it's just like a guy you know, like playing very loud acoustic guitar over some of these scenes, but it really only started to bother me towards the end, the guy starts singing a lot. And it Mm. almost is like a music video Mm. on top of the movie. And I did not really like the songs. And it's like weirdly distracting from from the actual content where it's just like mostly about listening to this guy's songs. And he's got this weird kind of way of saying like, Oh my life in my innocence. Wait, was it, like, is it Tom Waits? Yeah, a little bit. Like it's that weird gruff. Like, and, and, and yeah. it, it feels like the movie is saying you're supposed to be listening to this song, not paying attention to 
some pretty central scenes, like the the core romance blossoming, yeah. and like I don't. Yeah. It's a very weird choice, and I don't agree with it. Yeah, I, th- I think the movie's absolutely worth watching. Uh, but I liked to echo it. Every what DJ other was saying, uh, I, I think Oscar Isaac is pretty great. He shows so much restraint, and he's kind of like you know he's he's always at a kind of a simmer and then when he boils like when when his character flips the switch a little bit it feels earned uh the performance is great and i i really like tiffany haddish in it and uh, i thought ty sheridan was fine uh <laughs> how uh, dare you Will- speak that way about personal yeah. how dare you how dare you and i love seeing uh uh willem defoe in anything i could i could have gone for a little bit more he's terrific and Schrader is filming the Abu Ghraib scenes with, I guess it's like a 360 camera yeah, or like one of those. It's like fisheye, but you're seeing like a panorama. And it's the disorientation really, of that is really it's cool. very alien and disorienting. And then Defoe is just at an 11 the whole time in those sequences. Just terrifying. Yeah, it really it's very effective. Well, I think not only does that does that add to the disorientation that you're supposed to feel, but I almost feel like that's the only way to make those sequences watchable in the sense that what we're seeing is so horrific that you need uh-huh. you need to create some distance between your audience just to be able to like exist in that place for any amount of time. It's abstraction, just like what we were saying for Sam. It, it makes it less real and more like a vivid memory or nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, be, yeah because like it's it's atrocities going on in there. It's but it war does, crimes. It, they're they're dehumanizing yeah. the. It the does also. Completely. I feel like it does also capture the like hyper attention, like head on a swivel. Like if you were in that situation, you were anxiety. You're feeling that anxiety and panic in the moment where you would kind of be like darting your eyes around and try to take everything in. And so yeah. it is kind of capturing that too that we're looking at it in like a three six perspective i think it's important that you mention that too because i and i think this movie touches on it in a really interesting way and it's something that i feel like is very pertinent now is that the the i I think as a culture we have not done a good job articulating to people that maybe there is no way but the uh, you're not just perpetrating violence on other people you're perpetrating violence on yourself and it's not the same (laughs) obviously um but that just living in that space it's just bad for everyone. It's not, it's just, no, there's no benefits to it. There's no, we're not. And, and that was one thing I kind of wish the movie had spent a little bit more time on is like, we're not getting anything out of these people. Like we've done, at this point, we live in a time where we've done the studies that enhanced interrogation doesn't work. Right. <laughs> so, well, I do want to say, I think, I, and I don't want to give away exactly what happens at the end, but the last scene really does drive that home. I think that it, it, at the end, the torture became the purpose that yeah. the, it only existed for as a as a place for people to go be tortured the, the idea of using the torture to extract information became a a tertiary concern if a concern at all yeah. and that because in the you know the, the movie does ultimately involve torture not being used to extract information everybody already yeah. knows everything w- one of the great torture related scenes uh was uh from uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's This Is America, where he uh, he gets uh, Dick Cheney to sign his waterboarding bottle mm-hmm. as when he plays this Israeli uh, military guy. Uh, yeah. I, I got like a flashback to that. There is not a lot of graphic violence in this film. I'm afraid no. that people are going to walk away from this review feeling like it's a torture porn movie, and it's not. Much more psychological. It's, Much more it's psychological. almost entirely implied through filmmaking yeah. than on screen. Uh, Paul Schrader, Oscar Isaac, Tiffany Haddish. Uh, uh, the card counter, Paul Schrader, Oscar Isaac, Tiffany Haddish, 
is available on HBO Max now. We also watched the new show about Chicago, a family, a restaurant, The Bear, which is available on Hulu. Thoughts on The Bear? I loved it. I thought I think this is maybe after Severance my favorite new show this year so far. I'm just going to put that out there. I think I'm at episode 4, which puts me at about halfway through. Halfway. The thing, I think it looks, it looks really cool. I was, um, I saw that Hiro Murray, uh, I probably pronounced that wrong and I don't know why, uh, from, um, Atlanta, he produced on, I was surprised to find out, uh, that he didn't direct it. Cause there's a lot of his tonality, um, in there. Two directors, I think did all the episodes, but it definitely has a, it, it's been inspired by Hiro Murray's work. For yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. And like, it, it definitely has that same kind of feel to it. His aesthetic comes through. Yeah. And then of course, Jerry Mallon White, that was how I heard about everybody talking about Jerry Mallon White. I haven't seen Shameless, so I don't have any like association with him. Right. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it looks really cool. It's incredibly well acted for me. it, It wasn't quite clicking and I'm still trying to articulate why to myself, but I wonder if maybe it's because like, there's a question in my brain. It's like, wait, am I supposed to be rooting for them to gentrify this restaurant? Because I don't know that I am like, I don't know, like, uh, cause I clearly a part of the show is this tension between, um, Jeremy Allen White's character coming from the, that more high end restaurant. Um, it's about, it's, he's a fine dining chef yeah, and his brother commits suicide yeah. and leaves him this family owned Chicago beef sandwich. Yeah. Italian beef sandwiches from Chicago. It's a little bit like the Italian version of a cheesesteak, I guess. Like a roast beef sandwich on a roll with lots of onions and peppers and sometimes tomato sauce. They're delicious, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so he, he leaves the fine dining world and he goes to sort of turn around this kind of poorly run, falling behind Chicago, the sort of corner sandwich shop that's in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. I mean, to me, I feel like the show almost doesn't take a stance. It's just like gentrification is real and it happens. Mm -hmm. And this neighborhood is in the midst of it. And like, here we go, you know? Yeah, I think the show might also be a little bit blind to it because it's a white guy that owns the restaurant. He's trying to bring those, uh, you know, certain elements of the culinary industry into the restaurant. But it's almost like this white knight, white guy, is protecting this restaurant from the Oliver Platt white it's guy. It's the opposite who's... of that. It's really, I feel like the... the. Well, I'm just talking about if you were, like, uh, questioning the, the uh, gentry, because, um, you know, to, D- to DJ's point. But the whole show is really about how the white savior trope is dumb. Like, that, to me... Most of what the story is about here is this this white guy who's this great chef who food and wines, top chef in the world or whatever, <laughs> comes in and thinks I'm gonna I know how to do it. I'm no I'm the, the expert. I'm gonna tell these other guys how to run this restaurant. And then every week is him systematically discovering that only through collaboration can they make it work. It's like we've talked a lot about competence porn on the show and like to, for, I I define like a lot of the like stuff where it's fun to watch a group of people solve a problem together. Like Apollo 13 is like my ultimate example of competence porn. Where yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's fun to watch because they're all they're all experts doing their jobs well. And like to me, that's what this show was. It's like without 
the the baker figuring out the desserts without Ayo Adabiri as the sous chef who comes in with her ideas and inspiration without, I forget the character's name, the lady who like makes mashed potatoes and does the vegetables without her figuring out what cheese can add to the mix. Like without all of them kind of figuring out where they fit, it doesn't work. And just him trying to impose his order on it is not gonna make this sandwich shop any better. So like, I really think it's almost like a purposeful rejection of the, like gentrification, that certainly sort of hangs around the entire show. And I don't know that they really fully delve into it. Yeah. Well, and but I something... do think it, I do think it's, it's a rejection of the white savior narrative because this very diverse cast of people all of them are important in terms of turning this place around. Both of you have watched the whole first season, right? I've seen uh, three episodes, and then I got a couple episodes uh, spoiled sort of for me. Gotcha. Uh, because my wife watched it without me. Oh, my God. Gotcha. Well, because I was kind of wondering where we end up, because, like, where we're, where we're at. I mean, I could tell you. At, well, no, no, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to watch it, because I, because I do yeah. think I do think it's incredibly well acted. It looks great. I, I like the, the vibe. I like the vibe we're going for. Mm -hmm. It's just me trying to articulate, okay, what's not quite clicking and i think like i saw a twitter thread from somebody from part of chicago that was kind of ripping into it because it was one of those like oh you the people that wrote the show are from like the nice part of town i don't know chicago so i can't speak to it but i was like maybe i'm feeling this maybe that's what i'm feeling but because i don't know the the main voice of like keeping the heart of what the restaurant was is is the the, we find out it's not really his cousin, right? But he's he right. is labeled the cousin. He's such a repellent person. <laughs> yes, it's not really like a competition of of equals. It's like well, some of these criticisms are definitely engaged with in the second half. I was uh, yeah, I was kind of wondering where we end because I do think there's an interesting idea of the tension because it's not that Jeremy Allen White's character is wrong. Clearly, mm -hmm. they need to change some things because it's not they get a C. You know what I mean? They get in like episode yeah. three, they get a C. Um, Two or three. Um, so, so, and I think that is compelling, that idea of combining the two things to create something that does work, but it doesn't feel like one of those situations where you're both right. It's like, well, no, th there's great moments with the cousin. Like uh, there's specifically a moment where he gets a phone call from his, his uh, da daughter, I believe. That's his wife really, and, yeah, his ex-wife and his daughter. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really incredible moment. side of him completely. That actor, Eben Moss, uh, I'm looking at Eben Moss Backrack. Yeah, he was, gr he was great. He was micro in, in Punisher. He's Punisher. And so good in Punisher. He was That's John Carreyrou in The Dropout recently. Yeah, in the Elizabeth Holmes uh, doc, uh, series, uh, The Dropout. He's, yep. he's fantastic. I 100% I agree with, with what DJ said. Like, he, he is, he's very good at making this guy very recognizable. If you've lived in a big city, if you know, if you know a bunch of like loud, arrogant white dudes, it's it's a type that everybody kind of recognizes and knows, and he's very good at embodying it. And uh, and 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 yeah, I mean, I think that the show lives in a lot of these kind of little gray areas of contradiction, mm. where I don't know if it's necessarily defending Richie's point of view. That character's name is Richie. Yeah, I don't know if it's defending Richie's point of view. Uh, so much as it is recognizing that this is a guy who's really part of communities like this, and it is humanizing him in the way that it humanizes everybody. But I do think the second half of season one interrogates specifically some of the stuff that we're talking about, where he sees himself as the voice of this neighborhood, but not, the neighborhood doesn't necessarily see him as their spokesman. That's like a one-way street. Good for the neighborhood. Ways. That's a, I think that's a good overall a good call for the neighborhood. And, to me. and there are yeah there are, there are some moments where we sort of get to unpack that like how he came to feel like 
he's the the mayor of this neighborhood and why he feels that way cool. and and it's not oh anyway i think these layers are mostly in the show that would be my defense is that i don't know if this is necessarily a critique the show didn't think of so much as all of these are folding into like it's a complex situation the middle of big cities in america in 2022 is chicago's a-, a very segregated city you have like so many different pockets. And then when you get to like, oh, a blue collar neighborhood and a neighborhood where uh, there are uh, people of color and then just trying to mesh in that way uh, in Chicago, I think that's a very real aspect of what the city is. Because that it's become synonymous too with like now if you bring up gun control or mass shootings, the response you get from the white is like, oh, but you don't care about Chicago. Like it's become that stand in for like everything bad about urban environments and the inner city and all of that. And and yeah, I mean, I think like, like our cities have become very sort of divisive places. And I think this show lives in that world. And it does have like a lot of white main characters, but I think it does a very good job of balancing that out and giving you alternate perspectives and ultimately becoming a story about how everybody needs everybody. And the idea that one person is gonna come in and fix it is always bad. You know, I, yeah, and I, I really love Io uh, Itabiri's character, and like she is uh, like so important to the show and adds such a uh, strong element. So it's not just like, oh, uh, you know, the, the, it's the this power play by these uh, by these white guys, and uh, yeah. you know, there's from- also uh, Liza Colonzeus. She plays Tina, who is the other person I was trying to think of the the lady who's like she's like the vegetables and side dish sort of spot that's her spot in the kitchen she's fantastic and i don't know dj if you're there yet there's a great episode where she and uh sydney ioa to character sort of clash uh and it it, it, again it's just it's that competence porn like it's fun to see people who are good at their jobs and who are passionate and who care and like they have to figure out these problems together and i just find something about that very satisfying it's like the it's like in, in your own life we've all had those moments where just like Things start to click and you kind of get what the job is about and you up your you level up in that way. And it's like there's satisfaction to watching other people have those level up moments. Yeah. And for me, another standout, is, like a low key um, uh, standout is he's kind of like uh, uh, he, he works in the pastry stuff. Lionel Boyce. Yes, Marcus, the, the donut, the donut expert and cake chef. Yeah, and then of course uh, Maddie Matheson, who plays like the repair guy. Like he's just around. Yeah. Like he's just. He's, I like the way they utilize him, and I like that he's just kind of there. He's like a celebrity chef from Canada. He's also the show's uh, consult food consultant. Wow, that's cool. All the dishes, like yeah, the he cola. does YouTube, a lot of YouTube uh, yeah. videos and stuff. Yeah. So anytime they're like coming up with like, oh, it's a cola braise short rib yeah. with a risotto, like that's him coming up with what the dishes should be. Also, uh, we should make Joel McHale the bad guy in more things. He's Holy good at shit. it. Holy shit! He's good so at it. So scary. Yeah, there's a couple great. I won't give all of the way. There's a couple great like one scene cameos. Uh, yeah, Joel McHale is one of for them. sure. Oh, and uh, one thing I just want to like also note. Like the idea of the kitchen being a rough and tumble place or like the kitchen being like, as Anthony Bourdain described it, uh, as like a pirate ship, uh, like people getting together and it's hard drinking, it's hard living. You get the work done, you burn yourself, you cut yourself. And like the worst of it, like when it's done poorly, you get the uh, uh, the, um, the movie uh, Bradley Cooper burnt, <laughs> uh, like angry chefs living hard. But this is such a refreshing take on that 
is really true to what Anthony Bourdain said, but it's also human. It's well-written. It's so well-acted, as uh, DJ and Lon were pointing out. It's, uh, yeah, so you can really, oh, th this feels real, and it doesn't feel overdone, even though it's well-trod territory, kind of like, oh, the life of this kitchen. I think that's a great point, Hal. Uh, and one thing I was going to mention before, this plot, if you just give the bare-bones plot, is mm -hmm. so many shows internationally. <laughs> the, like, yeah. the, the chef... And then the relative dies and they've got to go back to their hometown and take over the family restaurant is yep. like it, like every week. There's like new from Norway is that show or Spain's <laughs> doing that show or Taiwan's doing that show. That is such a reliable, st stolid at this point sort of format. The fact that, that they came in and breathed all of this new life and came up with this whole world in which to set this very, very familiar narrative is like on its own. Pretty, pretty impressive, I thought. Absolutely. And uh, I just want to say one more thing on a personal note. Uh, my, I mentioned my wife. Uh, she has a deep connection to Chicago and the culinary world because she just directed a documentary about a famous Chicago chef Incredible. named Charlie Trotter. And uh, watching a little bit of it with her really uh, just, I connected with so much of that idea of the kitchen being a potentially brutal place, a pressure cooker, regardless if it's a greasy spoon or a high-end culinary experience. And uh, her film, I just want to shout out to my wife, uh, Rebecca, that uh, it was just picked up for distribution. So uh, it's going to have a limited release coming in the uh, the fall and or winter. Uh, Love Charlie, the rise and fall of Chef Charlie Trotter. Well, but I, I couldn't watch this. Uh, without uh, and maybe Lon and I can talk about it one day when it's sure. on streaming. I love it. Uh, I that'd love be it. great for a small sponsorship fee. I think we could probably work something. <laughs> okay, right. I'll talk to my wife and have yeah, her demo uh, you. I, great, I, uh, <laughs> very helpful. Charlie Trotter's vegetables, by the way, a great introduction if you're a dude like myself who lives alone, doesn't know how to prepare, cook vegetables. A great, very simple, very readable introduction. I recommend. Amazing. I will also say that that was another one of my big takeaways on the show is like, man, we, maybe we need to cool it in the food industry. Like maybe we don't need like 10 minute turnaround times. If this is what we're putting all these people through yeah. just to get a sandwich, maybe we need to dial it right? back a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking intense. Yeah. It's like, this feels like a lot for a hot dog. I don't well, this know. Is, yeah. But I mean like this, is, it's about like the kitchen goes from dysfunctional, like it's 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 very high stress, but I think that part of what they're saying is it shouldn't feel that anxiety-inducing every single shift. It should be a well, system. Well, speaking of like the Joel McHale bit, like I was like, this feels like too much for food. Oh yeah, that's that that that's super <laughs> high. Talk about a yeah. kitchen nightmare, you guys. So The Bear, it's available on Hulu. Absolutely worth watching. Well done show. And those are the things that we watched. DJ Woolridge, please, uh, will you tell folks uh, where they can find you and uh, what's anything else you want to shout out? You can find me at DJ Talks Trash. Please check out Hellbent at hellbentcomicbook.com. I would really, really appreciate it. And I think you will too. I think you all will enjoy the comic. Uh, and you can check out my podcast with Roxy Stryer, Only Stupid Answers. So that's it for me. Heck yes. Thank you for coming on and just uh, being a delightful uh, gentleman. I really appreciate having you here, DJ. Uh, hoot hoot, Owl Nation, uh, where my hooligans at. Starburns, thank you for having us. Travis Reeves, thank you for producing us. Jason K, thank you for our opening music. Lon, want to tell him anything? Nah, nah, I think we're good. 
Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk next time. All right. And uh, you can find me at Hal Rudnick and uh, find me on uh, twitch.tv slash Hal Rudnick. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys.